right, everyone. Welcome back to the Be Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Connor Murphy, here joined with the legend, Oren Sherman. <laughs> Oren, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. So if you've listened to our podcast before, I've referenced, uh, I've referenced Oren in a few different uh, podcasts, but mainly talking about the fear of, of what we do for training and then the results that he's gotten from it. However, before we get into that, um, I've sat down a few times and had lunch with Oren and have been absolutely blown away by the, the accolades, the accomplishments and all the things that he's done in his life before I even, you know, we even got a chance to, to say hello to each other. So I want to talk about your background and, and some of the things that you've accomplished, kind of this a similar conversation that we've had. Um, tell us about your early life. Uh, early life. I was always an artist my whole life, mm-hmm. but I wanted to make a living by being an artist. I didn't want to do something else on the side. <clears throat> so my dream was to go to art school. Um, and my parents were incredibly supportive of me in everything I ever did. So my parents gave me self-confidence, which is the best thing you can possibly ever own. Um, so I went to art school and I launched my life and it started out as an illustrator. And in my life as an illustrator from age 25 to about 35, I was published almost a billion times. So in this period before you were born, probably my work was ubiquitous postage stamps and everything from corporate work to the Burger King double cheese burger box. I was everywhere. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's all before you. Now, now, where did you grow up and where did you go to school? I grew up um, outside Boston in Newton. Okay. Um, I went to Newton High, public school guy, and went to Rhode Island School of Design. Graduated, and I started making my living while I was in college. I paid for my um, tuition, and I launched myself. And I think if there's anything I'm proud of, it's that I've reinvented my career and my life a whole bunch of times. So from being an illustrator, I moved to um, hospitality and doing, um, having licenses in carpet and wall covering and pattern design. And from there, that brought me into architecture, which is what brought me to um, 23 Dry Dock. And in the past year, it was a wonderful year. I was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Boston Design Community. And I did a TED Talk on creativity. So I'm 67. And Recently, I, 67. Yep, I just turned 67. Happy birthday. Yep, thank you. And in Miami for 67. And this has been the best year of my life. At six, so from 66 to 67 was the best year of your life. Yeah. Now, if I, I want to take a step back because being an illustrator that had been published nearly a billion times, a lot of times people will say, you know, that was your goal, mission accomplished, check the box. And then, but you wanted to reinvent yourself. You wanted to, was it the challenge of something new? Was it just a newfound passion? What drove you to, after being so successful in one area to say, I want to do this again? That's a really good question that very few people ask me. Um, When I achieve my early goals, like most goals, goals are finite. You reach things. Most people don't do the same thing their whole life. So when I accomplished what I wanted to do, I started to get tired of what I did. And I started to not like my work anymore. And it was at the height of my success. It was actually a kind of difficult time because I wasn't proud of what I was doing. Um, so I ended it. And was it, hey, I have this other thing I'm going to be successful with, or was it, I'm ending this and I'm going to figure it out? 
No, I ended it without having any idea what I was going to do. I ran away to Provincetown to be a painter. Okay. And I thought, well, this is the time for me to, I think I was about 30, maybe 32. And I still illustrate a little bit, but I wasn't really connected to my work. I talk a lot about it in the TED Talk. It's sort of an 11-minute memoir. Uh, and I painted, and I learned who I was again. And I thought I was done illustrating, and I would paint, and that would be my life. But life had other ideas for me. What drew you to painting? I was trying to figure out something. And I think that in painting, the best part about it is when you're trying to figure something out. And I was trying to figure out my place in the world and who I was and where I was. And because I was successful young, I never really had time to think about it and to consider my life. But at the ripe age of 32, I felt like I was the oldest person in the world, that my success was behind me. And I really didn't know what to do. So I did what I always do when I don't know what to do is I focused on doing artwork. And I figured out who I was. And so from 32, let's say, if we're just generalizing, how long were you painting for before you, and was there anything that came from that outside of the important thing of right finding yourself? Was there anything that, that happened from that that led you into architecture? Or was it just, hey, here's the next step from it? Well, I thought we were going to talk about fitness. We'll <clears> so I have there. to think about this. This is way more interesting. So, yeah, it's, it is said that life can only be lived for, lived forward, but understood backward. And it's really true. When every choice I made, it seemed like I went from this to this to this, and there's no sequence to it. Looking back at my age, I look back and everything's a perfect sequence. So what really happened was <clears throat> I was always interested in architecture and painting architecture. I wanted to be an architect, but it's not who I am. And I was painting all kinds of architectural scenes and buildings and sort of figuring out my place in the world. And then this thing happened to me. I saw this building, this abandoned building, and it was really compelling. And I looked at it, and I knew it was me. It was a boarded-up building, no way in, no way out, but you really wanted to know about it. So I painted it. And when I painted it, it came to life for me, and I knew it was going to be my last painting because I... I got what I came for. And I learned from being an illustrator. I got a great piece of advice from Todd Oldham, who's a really well-known um, artist and fashion designer. And he said, don't be the last one at the party. And when I, I accomplished that painting and I found out who I was, I feel like I walked through the painting and out into a different life. And people found me as an illustrator again, but it was with new work. And I was excited about what I did and I was enthusiastic. And I learned that you never get back what you lost. You can only find something new for the first time. I learned that a whole bunch of times. And I was drawn back in illustrating. I was asked to do a whole bunch of magazine covers and I ended up back in that world, but I was smarter this time. I knew that everything was going to be finite and everything had to be my best work. So every choice I've made in my life has been, where can I do the best work? It's not been where can I make the most money. It's been where can I do the best work. And money comes when you're doing your best work. And you have to be happy. And from there, um, this is really strange. 
one day <clears throat> I fell in love with pattern for no reason that I can figure out. Pattern is all around us. You know, your wall covering and carpet, everything has pattern on it. And I fell in love with it. And I started doing non-narrative artwork. Illustration is narrative. Am I boring? No. Okay. I'm so unbelievably intrigued right now. Like it is, you talk, here's how simple I am. When you talk about patterning, I'm like, wow, yeah, I guess everything has pat. Like that is how simple I am. I'm thinking about the rugs that are in our nightlife venues. I'm thinking about the, as simple as how our soundboards, if you can look over here, just having the different blocks that are right in there. And it just, it's, it's so unbelievably intriguing. It's the absolute opposite of what you just said. Did you ever consider, look at your arms? Pattern. Yeah. I mean, you've decorated yourself with pattern. Well, other people have. I just, I'm, just the, I'm just the canvas. I think you hopefully made the decision. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat of it. I like to give artists creative freedom, though, because I'm not very artistic. So when someone says this will look really good and it's someone that I trust, it's usually a thumbs up from there. I once complimented a woman at a tattoo and she said, I don't remember getting it. <laughs> so I fell in love with pattern and from pattern, I was approached by wall covering companies and carpeting companies, all who carry what's called repeat pattern. And I had successful what are called licenses in those fields, which are collections under my name. And that brought me into architecture. So I came into architecture on the surfaces. So architecture firms use a lot of surfaces. They spec a lot of carpeting and wall covering, and I'm, I'm good at that. And based on that, I found my way to Elkisman for the architecture and something happened in the room. I brought out my work and everyone was quiet. And I knew, you know how times in your life, you know, something happens. Mm -hmm. And I knew that was a something. And based on that, they asked me to do consulting a few hours a week and 60 hours a week later, I said, maybe you should hire me. But in the meantime, I'm also a professor at Rhode Island school of design. So that's something that has remained part of my life. I teach a day a week and I have the best kids and it's really exciting and it keeps you really honest because you ask yourself, I'm telling them this, am I following this? So being a college professor is a big deal for me. Um, and that brought me to Elkisman Frederick Architecture, which brought me to Reebok. I want to say, before we get into the fitness side of things, again, I'm just so unbelievably intrigued here because you know, people always, uh, you always hear this phrase that you, you know, that you only have one peak, right? It's okay. And, and, and in your case, in your, you know, early thirties, it's like, I've hit a monumental peak that some people will never, never achieve. Most people will never achieve in their life. However, for you, you had a mindset that was, uh, this isn't it. And not only did you repeat it and do it again, but it seems as though it's like multiple times you've done it. And when you told me, you know, when you do something and it's like something happened there, I think that is one of the most incredible feelings in the world. Um, and it seems like it's something that maybe you don't chase that feeling, but it's something that's happened or occurred to you many times. What is, is that a feeling that you, that you seek? <sighs> because it's a good feeling, right? So... I have to tell you, the expression is there's no second acts in American lives. That's the biggest lie in the world. There are second acts, there are fourth acts, there are 12 acts. And only one goal, that goal may end, or it may not be what you want it to be, but that doesn't mean it's the end of your life. I think that there's all these voices telling you all the time, you have to be this. You have to be 
you have to be successful. You have to be this, you have to be this, you have to be this and pressure. And now with social media, it's incredible, but there's a little voice. that's your intuition that says, not that, that, and it's so soft that it's hard sometimes to listen to it. And when it speaks, you have to learn how to listen. And it's not what you want to hear. Your intuition is telling you, not that, that, and you tamp it down. You think, no, 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 it can't be that. I don't want to hear that, but it's never wrong. And I think learning to listen to your intuition and to make decisions based on a leap in the dark is a great, great thing. And it's really scary. It's never not been scary, but it's also never been a bad idea. And you know, it's interesting to me too, about what you said. And I think this is where I have found, I can relate obviously on a smaller scale, but, um, and this is wild. Have you ever seen the movie, uh, Batman dark Knight rises? Which one was that? That's the one where he was put in that giant cave, that giant hole. And then he had to escape. It's the one with Bane. Yes. Okay. And, and this is interesting because I saw it in my head when you were referencing, I knew I needed to change. So I, I quit. I stopped it without saying, Hey, well, here's something that I have. Here's a safety net that I have when I'm going to stop this to see if it works. Is that you in the old phrase, you know, you burn the ships. This isn't what I want to do. This isn't make me happy. I'm done doing it. I'm going to find out what's next. And in that movie, in the Dark Knight Rises, right, there was a jump at the very end that, you know, you had to like jump and then they grabbed onto the cliff. And the first two times he did it with the rope tied around him and he failed. And then he fell down and he fell to his safety and then he was going to work his strength up to try again. But it seems like it holds true is when you have the safety net or when you have the, the ships to go back to, you're not going to take the island. You're not going to, you're not going to give absolutely 100% everything you have to the success of this because you have something to fall back on. And it seems that you, as much as it is terrifying, you've done that multiple times. I never had a safety net. So I'll tell you something. There's no one's listening, right? This is just us. Currently in Hurley. <laughs> so I'll tell you something I usually don't tell people. After having been a really successful illustrator and speaking and being well-known, and it wasn't making me happy. And when I left it, I felt like I failed. I don't admit this a lot. And it took me a lot of years. It wasn't until I did the TED Talk that I realized I ended it. I didn't fail. It didn't leave me. I put a stop to it. And I never realized it. It took me 20 years to realize I ended something because it wasn't working for me. And when I realized that I was in charge, even though I felt that I wasn't, it was one of the most liberating feelings in the world. So when you end something, be it a relationship or a job or something, and you might feel like a failure, but you're not really aware, I think at the time, that you're making a conscious decision because it just feels so chaotic to leave something that everyone's saying, don't do that. And this little voice is saying, have to do it. William Ernest Henley once said, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments to scroll. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And I think it's one of those things that's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm the captain of my soul. But in reality, that's what you're saying is that you've 
you've always been in control. Maybe not of what happens, but how you react to it. Right. And it's so, it's just, I'm trying to wrap my head around someone feeling that they failed at something that you were so wildly successful about. Was it, was there a feeling that you just, because you wanted to walk away or because you wanted to end it, that it was a feeling of it? Or was there, was there more you wanted to accomplish in there? I secretly knew that I wasn't doing my best work. So at the time that I was getting the most, most jobs, the most attention, the most everything, I knew it wasn't, I wasn't giving it my all. And it's a really, it was an awful place to be. It was probably the unhappiest time I've ever been being, getting so much attention for something I wasn't proud of. Wow. It was really, and I knew that I had to walk away because I, it was nothing. I couldn't see anything ahead. It was dark. And I felt that my life was over, that I was old. This was half my life ago, but I'm not, I don't consider myself a brave person. I don't think of myself as this person. I made a choice because I had to. And I think I tell my students that bravery isn't not being afraid. It's being afraid and doing it anyway. So every decision that I've made seems really cool and easy. And, you know, I've been successful doing it, but every single one was with just terror. And you're terrified and you do it anyway. Has there been anything that you felt maybe you did fail at? Maybe there's something where you were like, hey, this is what I wanted to do, but, or maybe you were afraid to do it and it just didn't work out the way that you wanted to? No, because as you said before, you make a choice and a door opens. And then the things that happen to you, you have to be awake and aware of those things and make your decisions based on what's coming at you. But it's hard to know at the time, but you feel so alive. And I was addicted to feeling alive and to having those choices and doing work that I knew was great, figuring it would end up in a good place. Things don't end up always in the place that you want, but I think that putting energy out there that's your best energy brings you to a place unexpected. This is all having making a lot more sense now. Knowing when you first walked in the gym, and quite frankly, pretty much every other time that you walked in the gym, the fear of each day it was doing something that you weren't sure or that you were capable of. And now that I'm, it, you know, it's so wild because I'm speaking to you and, and I didn't know any of your accomplishments for years. I didn't know what you did for work. I just knew you were unbelievably well-dressed and that <laughs> even though you were terrified on a daily basis, and really there were some times where you were convinced you weren't going to do what we wanted you to. And then we'd, we'd talk you off the ledge. What do you mean sometimes? <laughs> there were a couple of times. Do you know how many times Denise kept me from bolting? That was, and I remember those conversations. I remember I'd be on the turf and you'd walk in the gym and you'd say, oh, I'm just going to do my own. There's some stuff in there that's not. And then it's like, go get changed. Come down here. We already have everything set. But why I say sometimes is I do remember there was one workout. Workout is called Cindy. It's a CrossFit workout. As many rounds as possible in 20 minutes with five strict pull-ups, 10 push-ups, and 15 air squats. I'm very well and you, acquainted with Cindy. And you said, oh, yeah, I think I'm going to do this one. Why? Because you were one of the only people in the gym that could do five strict pull-ups unbroken for every single round of the workout. And, you know, uh, amongst many other times, you looked like a, a god amongst men 
in that period of time. So there were a couple of times that you were like, oh yeah, this is a good one for me. Well, we're going to be okay. It's my wheelhouse because I weigh 145 <laughs> pounds. There's not that much to lift. But here's what you don't know. Um, so I worked upstairs at Alcosman Freddy and I'd walk by the Reebok gym every day. And I'd see like you guys screaming in there and the music's blaring and people that lifted like automobiles. And I just thought, I'm never going in there. <laughs> This is not for me. I didn't, I didn't have a good relationship with gyms. I never had a really good relationship with fitness. So the backstory is when I was a kid in like high school, there was no fitness, there was sports. And if you weren't good at sports, there wasn't an alternative. There wasn't a place to be. So I wasn't good at sports. And it wasn't until I was 20 that I kind of started running and I realized that fitness wasn't competitive sports and I could just compete with myself. And that's kind of where I, my fitness started. But I would walk by the Reebok gym and I think there's no way I'm ever walking in there. So I, I still don't know what got me through the door. But I was thinking about this and what I remember is I'd see all you guys, you know, the fittest people I've ever seen, half my age, and everyone was like sweating and swearing and screaming. But like, and then the doors would open and you'd be hanging out, but you all look like you were having fun. And I thought, this is weird. I don't get this. Gyms aren't fun. People don't have fun. People are like talking and they're like, oh my God, this is a community. And I'd never seen that before. So that's what drew me in. It was a community. And I thought, is it even possible that I can be part of this thing? So somehow I walked in and I met GC he was so nice and he did a fitness test on me and he said, you can do this. And no one had kind of ever said that to me before. So I thought, I'll try it. It was petrified. <clears throat> and every time, every time Connor spoke, every time he taught a class, I'd come up to him after he's like in his zone and he's telling us everything we got to do. And I'd go up to him and I'd say, I can't do this. <laughs> every time. And Connor would say, yes, you can do this. We're going to modify this. We're going to modify this. And he took care of me and it was fun. And I found a community of people. So I met GC and I met you and I met Denise and I met Kevin and I met Austin and if I missed anybody and everyone was so nice and so welcoming and so like encouraging. And I had never seen this before. So it was you guys that changed my whole idea about fitness. And I found that I was doing things that I couldn't believe I was doing. And I was having fun and I wanted to die just like everybody else. And people were really nice to me and really welcoming. And really, I never felt like the oldest guy in the room, though I always was. And I can't believe how I found a community. And I'm a loner. And loner is a relative term, right? Loner is just a person who hasn't found their, their you know, niche yet. A lot of times I come into a new area where there's not the CrossFit and the fitness obsessed. And it's like, you know, I'm the odd person out. But whenever I go to the gym and it doesn't even have to be my gym, you know, granted we had something very, very special at Reebok, but you go into a gym and you go around like that kind of CrossFit atmosphere where it's like, Hey, we're all, we're all going fast. We're all going hard. We're all trying really, really hard here, but we're going to celebrate each other's accomplishments as much as we're going to celebrate our own. Yes. And when people were celebrating my little accomplishments, it felt really great. And I also realized that when you're an artist, 
an artist is a practice. It's not a goal. It's something that you work on your whole life to be better at. And you're never going to be Michelangelo. You have to get over that. And you just try to be better every day. And I realized that going to the gym and CrossFit was a practice. It wasn't a goal. Goals happen by practice. And there are days where you just have really bad days and you just don't want to do it. And you drag yourself in and you always walk out feeling great. And I got addicted. And I always say CrossFit isn't the end goal. CrossFit is the vehicle to longevity in life. CrossFit is the vehicle, the community and the, and the small accomplishments and all of that stuff. They're not the goal, but that's the vehicle that's going to get you to where you want to be. It's a, it's a vehicle to whether it's happiness outside the gym, whether it's feeling better, whether it's lower blood pressure, whether it's more muscle mass, less you know, bone density, all of that stuff. It's that community. It's that workout. It's those small accomplishments that are going to get you there. It's, it's, it's you in the driver's seat, and that's the vehicle that's going to take you there. It's the world's best antidepressant. I truly believe that. So here's the goal that I never thought I would hit. So I just had my checkup. And again, I'm 67. So the doctor takes my blood pressure. It's like, whoa, we don't see this outside of teenagers. I'm thinking, this is good. And blood oxygen was 100%. And standing pulse was 54. And he said, I don't see these kinds of numbers outside of athletes. And that is a word that I've never heard used for me, Orrin Sherman, athlete. And there in the doctor's office, he and me, he said, you have the numbers of an athlete. I wish you could have been there. Um, so the goal that I didn't think I would reach, I reached in the doctor's office from these years of work and from what you guys taught me. So thank you. I'm an athlete now. We always looked at you as an athlete, but I think even when we said those words, it never, it, it kind of, kind of fell upon deaf ears. Deaf ears. Yeah. No, that's other guys. That's you guys. That's not me, but it is, you know, my goals are realistic and I think that's for everybody. That's important to have a realistic goal of what you want in fitness. You may never look exactly like what you want. It depends how much time you want to put in and what your, I mean, my goals are to be, to f be fit and be mobile and to be strong and to be happy and to keep working out. And I know that I can reach those goals and to be a little bit better. And I'm not losing anything. I'm as strong as I ever was. And that's kind of amazing. I'm not huge, but I'm strong. And I think the fitness is an infinite goal. We spoke a lot about finite goals, but I don't think you ever achieve fitness. I don't think that it's ever a time when you say, I am fit. Because if I were to say, hey, your doctor said, you know, your resting heart rate was at 54 beats per minute which is incredible. If I were to tell you, hey, if, you, if we keep doing this, we can get you down to 52, you're going to be like, okay, let's do it. Let's get into this state of super health. Let's build this hedge against sickness. And, and that's what we believe is that fitness is a hedge against sickness because you have to travel through all sorts of fitness and wellness to get into this area of sickness. And it's a, it's a, it's a hedge against disease. Not only is it a hedge against sickness, when things happen and they will, yes, it, it is the absolute what you need to get better. That being fit when you get sick or when you break something, when something happens is going to help you get better quicker, faster. It's the, um, it's the, what do they call it? It's the, the cure, like in the antidote. It's like, it's got, you know, it's, I think those are more so the same thing, but it's the, 
you know, I always talk about functional movements as being the best prehab, right? The more capacity you have to be able to squat, deadlift, and press, the better it's going to be when life happens. But also after life happens, well, those same things are the best rehab, rehabilitation tool to get you back into this state. So it's not just, hey, you know, how many times have I heard, well, I'm going to, I'm going to work out for three months first and get in enough shape to come do this stuff. And it's like, we got to start, we got to start doing this stuff. And I think it's maybe an ego thing where someone doesn't want to go into a place and suck. Like no one does. You do it because it, it, that's sometimes where the most amount of growth is. But, um, I think going into a place and sucking at it is the place to be. If you're the best in the room at what you do, you're in the wrong room. It is really exciting to go into a place and suck at stuff. And I mean, if you told me I would be the guy that'd be watching like exercise videos and I like a watch your video, go, oh, that's what I was missing in a squat. And if you told me I was the guy that it would be get up at 6.30 in the morning to go to the gym, I'd think, no, not me, never happening. But one of the things that was cool was watching all you guys be, you know, I consider they just, you know, the idols of the fitness world, but you were never, all, none of you were ever completely satisfied. You're always working at something else. You're like, I don't know, my quads, my something. So it was like really exciting to see you were all going for something bigger and we could share that. So rather than seeing you and thinking this was unobtainable, I realized that what your goals were, were my goals too. We're just different goals. They, they differ by degree, not by kind. Right. So I got to tell you the biggest, best wrap up of all this. So, you know, I go to the gym and I don't think about it. And, you know, it's great. I love it. And so a guy that I've only spoken to just to nod, just to say hi. And he came up to me and he said, if you don't mind me saying this, you're my inspiration in the gym. So this guy's 30 years old. He's in beautiful shape. We've never spoken. I don't know why he spoke to me. And he said, I look at my dad, who's in horrible shape. He's probably about your age. I'm actually probably maybe more his grandfather's age. <laughs> he said, I, I, I've never seen a role of someone your age in this kind of shape and realize that I can have that too. That I, I, this isn't just something of the young. This is something I can have in my whole life. And I, I just want to, you know, it's really inspirational seeing you here and seeing you work out and seeing how well you're doing. And I just want, I was so stunned. You know, no one has ever said that to me in a gym that I was an inspiration to them at a, at a gym of all places. And that he was watching me and he was thinking that where I was was a goal for him. It was probably the best thing that's ever happened to me at a gym, and it was just the nicest compliment. Now I want you to think about what it took for that person to come up to you and to think about how many other people there are that are in that same boat and same category that are inspired by you. That wasn't just one. It wasn't a one-off. It wasn't a weird thing. That's a big thought. You know, when I started out in the gym, you know, I was pretty much the oldest person in CrossFit, not by two years, not by 10 years, sometimes by 30 years. And I always thought that people were looking at me thinking, who's that old guy that we have to deal with? I, I literally thought that, but it was all me. You know, everyone was always so nice. But having someone say that I was inspirational to them is a really big thought to wrap my brain around. And it's, you know, that's, that's what, it has to be a thought. Right for everyone. 
I look at, I'm so fortunate that my parents, my dad specifically, um, you know, both my parents, I could just obviously relate to my dad more, him being involved with CrossFit in the last 13 years. And I'm like, that's what I want. I don't fear that now. I don't fear being 65 years old because I see his quality of life that speaks to his capacity. And for other people, it's like, yeah, you may be competing with people who are 30 and really fit, but how many times do they look at you and say, I wish that's what my dad was doing. I wish that's what my mom was doing. I wish that was what my grandparents were doing. And maybe it keeps people in. So I'm going to tell you the secret of aging. Please do, because uh, as much as we've studied it, we don't know why we age. Well, I'm going to tell you the whole thing. (laughs) Aging is luxury. And we've both had losses in our lives, and we've lost people that died too young. So you realize that when you complain about getting older, the alternative is not getting older. So aging is a luxury. Your choice is how you're going to live that life. If you are excited about what you're doing, and you think that you haven't done your best work yet, and there are goals to achieve, you actually never age. The vessel ages, but you don't. So my job is to take care of the equipment that I was given and keep it moving and active because I need it. But my emotional and intellectual job is to always think, I haven't done my best work yet. It's a carrot and a stick. It's ahead of me. And I'm excited about what's going to happen next. And next week, today, I could do my best work this afternoon, or maybe not. And there's tomorrow and there's the day after that. So that is the secret to never aging, to be excited about what you do and to be looking forward to the future and understanding that things will happen and you stay in shape and you deal with it and you keep moving. That might be, not might, that's, that's very likely the most profound thing that's ever been said on this podcast, potentially even in this room. Hmm. By 145 pound me. <laughs> talking about fitness. Well, when you talk about the capacity and, you know, that's, that was just your vessel, mm. right? 145 pounds is just the vessel talking, but the amount of knowledge and, and life and experience that you've had is, that's what makes that profound. So I have to thank you also and all of you at the gym and all my friends because fitness was a goal that I thought was unachievable. And I realized that it's just this, now it's practice, it's a part of my life and it, it's keeping me young and it's keeping me active and it's just another thing that I do every day and I think maybe this won't be the best day, but that's okay. And I've learned that from you guys, that you can just suck one day and you can just drop the weights and you could be mad at yourself and I think, but you go on. So it is not succeeding, it is keeping working. And I see, because I'm a RISD professor, I see a lot of really talented kids And people say to me, oh, those talented kids must become the huge successes. But it's not true. It's not the really talented kids. It's the kids that have enough talent but aren't, can handle failing and can pick themselves up and can get better and better all the time. And those are the ones that make it. Not the stars, but the people that don't give up. I see that in sports. I see that in people that I've worked with and trained before kids who've never lost a game who are just invincible. And then at some point in time, they're going to face adversity. And the ones that don't know how to deal with it have crumbled. And I've seen it with the most talented people I've ever met in my life. Yep. I see it with the most talented artists I've ever had in my classroom. Kids that have a hundred times more talent than I'll ever have. Kids that are just amazing. But what they 
frequently they can't handle a rejection or something that doesn't work out or any a failure of any kind and they give up because it's easier to give up but the kids that you know just keep working they're the ones that are the stars so we all get to do that you know so now my whole relationship with the gym is like my relationship with everything else you keep working it's a practice and you get all these goals that you put out of your mind and sometimes you reach them you know when i go to the doctor's office or the kid i've never spoken to says i'm his inspiration and that's a great day you said something earlier in the podcast regarding energy about the energy you're putting out there is the energy you're receiving um i see this a lot in the in the bad part of it and in the good part but with people who are unbelievably negative and I see some some positive things that happen from people who negative self-talk. But do you ever find yourself in a rut where you're not thinking or saying that you're good enough? And how do you get yourself out of it? Because I think it's really relative across the board for people thinking I'm not good enough. Because I think it's not an authentic voice. We, I said earlier, we have lots of voices that are telling us mm-hmm. that we're not good enough. And I think everybody has it. I think women have a special, a special challenges with it. And I think that voice is always there, but I think of it as not an authentic voice. And the only person that I'm going to say isn't good enough is me saying that to me to drive me forward to be better. It's not something that's just going to hammer me down. But when you put out negativity, you meet negative people, and that becomes your life. When you put out positivity, you meet positive people. And I sound like a bumper sticker, but if you're excited, like I said, if you're excited and you're looking forward to things and you really think the next day is going to be your best day, you meet those kinds of people. And don't you want to hang out with those kinds of people? It's it's unbelievable how there's a you know bumper sticker, you know, misery loves company. And that it just attracts that. But I think it's tenfold, the positivity side of it. Yeah, I mean, people say, I don't like to complain. I say, complain, it's free and it's fun, but move past it. Yeah, don't get that. How do you sift? Right? You, have the, you have the negative voices that are coming in, or, but how do, you, how do you take that in to think maybe I can do better, but not let it pound you down? How do you separate that? Is that just the, is that just experience? I think that, um, that having my work and being lucky enough to have a, a profession that is something that I'm passionate about enables me to always move forward because I can always reach into that place and find something. And being an artist is really difficult. It doesn't go from success to success. There's long periods that are really dark and really difficult. And out of those times is how you reinvent yourself and find something new. Like I said, it's that little voice that says, not this, this. There's an artist that I love, um, Linda Barry. She's a friend of mine. She's the grandmother of alternative arts cartooning. She's exactly my age. And she says, there's only two questions in life. Is this good or does this suck? So the question is, you ask yourself about your work, is this good? And if this is right, you follow it. Or does this suck and get out of that thing? And I just love that, the two simple questions. So ask yourself, does this suck? Is this unhappy? Is this not where I want to be? And then get yourself out of it and figure out a way. And it will be petrifying and it will be scary. And there's no lit signs with arrows saying this way, walk through this door. You just have to walk down a dark hallway with the absolute 
conviction that something good will happen. And one of the nice things about aging is it's happened to be enough times that I know it will happen again and it will keep happening. But the first time is rough and you got to trust yourself. A lot of people in our world, um, Hurley included, uh, create music and they are DJs, they are producers, and they do a lot of different creation of art in the form of music. And I've met and I've gotten the opportunity to train and work with a lot of different musicians. However, I think this is probably relative to a fellow artist that I don't know the answer to. And a lot of times DJs will have passion projects, things that they absolutely love. It is their work. It is there. It is everything that they want in music, but the critics and other people don't feel the same. Have you had things? Have you had times where you said, this is the right work? Yet sometimes in a general sense of it, success is measured by perception of others. Success may be measured by how many people buy the pattern. Success may be measured by how many people stream the songs. How do you separate? Because you, you've got to have some sort of care. Because if all you do is make your own stuff and it makes you happy, you know, sometimes you got to pay the bills. Or what is what is the separation between the, the the man in the arena and the critic? That's a really complicated question. <clears throat> um, I would say that every project I've done is a passion project, and every single one of them has not had a group of cheering people at the beginning cheering me on. When I first came out as an illustrator, people said, your work is it's too avant-garde, we can't use it, it's nice, but you know we can't use it. And within a few years, I became the guy. But this is really interesting. I met the head of Hill Holiday, which is the biggest advertising agency, one of the biggest in the world in Boston, and I met Stavros Kosmopoulos, who was a president of the place. I don't know how I got in the room, it was before the internet. And I was just a kid, I was like 25, and I hadn't had any success yet. I was making $8,000 a year, and which I lived on. And he- Which is about $120,000 a year now, just to- Not quite, <laughs> it's more like 45. And he looked at my work and he said to me, so when you make it really big and it all ends, what are you gonna do then? And I walked out of the office and I thought, what did he just say? And then when it happened, 20 years later, I thought, oh my God, he was right. He saw the whole thing. So he saw a kid that was talented, whose work was going to hit it big, and he knew it was going to end. So every project for me starts as a passion project because I can't separate who, what is important to me and what I do from what I'm going to do. So what I do is I, I pursue what's important to me, and then I find the place where it has a, um, where it's quantifiable. I've never gone after the money, never in my life. I've, my work has brought me to the places excellence brings money to you, I think, but I've never done anything just for the money. Um, and my whole career changed in a passion project, which was falling in love with pattern that made no sense. And my husband looked at my stuff that was just, I still remember the piece and he said, it's really pretty, but you'll never make a living out of it. And that was, of course, you know, the thing that was <laughs> led to, you know, the biggest living. So, you know, I'm involved in a passion project now and I don't know what's going to happen, but it's really exciting. Nothing bad's going to happen from a passion project. And maybe it just becomes your own thing, but 
it makes you so happy. And nothing that makes you happy is a bad thing. I think that's, that's going to hit home for a lot of people. Because I guess in some sense of it, we're all artists in some way, shape, or form with something that we do. But I know for me sometimes when I chase, hey, this is what's popular, this is what I should be doing, um, I start to lose myself. And then I lose the passion that's in it. And now I'm doing work for the wrong reasons without any passion into it. And when it's something where I'm like, I really, really enjoy and like this. And it always seems those are the things where I'm like, it doesn't matter how people respond to this because I'm really, really enjoying myself. It brings you to the right place. And it's usually those are the things that end up catching gear. And when the rubber hits the road, it's, it's, it's the fastest moving vehicle. I think for artists, there's three reasons to do work. Um, because you love doing it, because it gets you someplace where you earn money. Any two of them are a win. But if you don't love doing it, it's not getting you any place. You're not making any money. You're wasting your time. It's a terrible place to be. And I think the big difference between what you do and what I do, aside from, you know, you've got about 100 pounds of muscle on me that I don't have, is that what you do is very, you live in a world where you get, you're in a community where you get a lot of live feedback and a lot of energy back from the energy you put out. Mm -hmm. For musicians and artists who lead more private lives, I had an enormous community of fans when I was a well-known illustrator, but I didn't know any of them. I, I worked alone. I would run into people that said, oh, you did that piece, you did that piece, but you don't really have a community. So it's a solitary life. And you have to kind of trust that there are people out there that love it. And when you, know, you meet people and you're, they tell you that your work means something to them, it's a really big deal. But on the other hand, when you meet people that are mean to you or insulting or you know, imply that when you have a success, you didn't deserve it, it really hurts. So one person can really hurt you. You know, we are, if you care about what you do, a single person you don't even know or care about has the ability to hurt you and you have to put up a boundary. But I admire the feedback when I see you up there and you're getting so much energy back from the energy you put out there. That's a live thing. And I, I think it's just amazing for me and for artists and people that have more solitary careers. It's something you don't really get to experience as much. That's interesting. It's interesting to think that because you're right. I kind of judge the efficacy of my class, not on how I felt about it, but usually the energy that I'm getting back. And there's times when I'm like, oh, that wasn't a great class. And because I had you know, something else going on or I had, you know, there's, and there's a lot of different projects, but yeah, it is almost like immediate feedback of energy. And, you know, it's like Denise, you know, she has more energy and and channeled passion in coaching than anyone I've ever met. And you can tell, right? There's no, you don't have to ask Denise and say, Hey, are you passionate about this? Hey, heck yeah. Are you really into this type of stuff? And it's like, you know, you know it because you can, you can sense it from someone who's passionate about it. And it's something you can't fake. So is there, but I watch, I've watched you guys because, you know, I'm watching really carefully my coach because, you know, I don't want to screw up and it's like a tiny <laughs> little thing. But I always thought everyone can't, you can't all be having a perfect day, but you were always so present in that experience. I mean, I know enough of you to know that this stuff happens. Your lives don't have perfect, your lives aren't perfect, but you were in every situation I've seen, you were able to not have that visible when you were coaching. And maybe that's why you coach. 
Yeah. I think that's sometimes the difficult parts of it. Um, but again, getting that positive feedback from others is such a rewarding thing. If, if I couldn't figure out a way to, to monetize or make money or to, you know, put food on the table by coaching, I would be sad doing something else because the energy and, I mean, you probably know this as a, as a professor and the way that you spoke about, you have the best students. Well, because you have passionate students. And if you had students who didn't care about the topic, I'd be willing to bet that you wouldn't think they were as such good as student. They're as good of students. It's that they're passionate about it. You're teaching with passion. They're receiving with passion. And I mean, there's, there's very few feelings than as good as lecturing to a captive audience, speaking to someone who is really listening and care about what you're saying, because you'll, you'll articulate better and you'll put more planning into it. Where if you were just going to rehearse as a teacher from a topic from people who are like, I just have to get this class out of the way, you know, the, the heads down on the desk and the other people who aren't paying attention that usually draws from the energy. So I think lecturing to a captive audience and, and expressing energy where you get it back is, is probably something that you see as a professor as well. Well, you know, I teach in an elite school where it's very hard to get into and the kids that do it have to turn the world upside down to get in there. So I tend not to have a lot of passionate kids, but I have kids that don't connect sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we're on their phones, which drives me crazy. <laughs> um, and what I will do is I will never humiliate a kid in a class, never. But I'll say, can you stay for a minute? And after class, I'll say, well, what's going on with you? You're not really present. You're not really focused. You're not really here. Tell me what's disconnected between your work and you in this class right now so we can fix it. And they're stunned that I noticed that I care. And it always works because there's something going on. They maybe didn't feel like Sometimes they say, well, the thing I really want to do, I don't think I could do in this class. I say, try me. <laughs> so a difficult student is just someone who's pushing you away because they're having some difficulty. And it's my job to figure out what it is and bring them back into the fold. So those things happen with me in a private way, whereas you have to do it in a big group. And I've seen people in class who interrupt it were difficult. It's the only time I see coaches kind of falter for a second when they have someone who's needing to be the coach or needing to interrupt or to stop the flow. And I can see that that, that bugs you, but you will never take that person aside. But I can see that it stops your flow sometimes. And those people are obnoxious and we all know they are. Right. But, you know, we're not going to say anything. If only you were like, or if every other teacher in this world was similar to you with the care and passion, because I know from, I was a problem child growing up and there was no teachers that were middle ground for me. There was no teachers who wouldn't remember me. Teachers either loved me or they absolutely hated me. And the ones that hated me were the ones that would not understand if there was anything else going on or not care enough to do it. It was just, I was just a nuisance for them. And I was, I mean, I'm not blaming them for it. However, the ones that I connected with the most were the ones that were like, hey, we got to find a way to get through to, to this kid. And it wasn't just like the PE teachers, which I, what I always got along with because they could see my passion. I remember I had a Spanish teacher that was very similar and took me day one. Hey, I, you know, I have a discussion. I remember being, you know, I was in like seventh grade and it was, hey, I want to see Nora Maite. And I remember 
being like, wow, this person cares about me and me learning. The next day I was like, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to have all this stuff done as opposed to it being like this, like shaming because of my need for attention or whatever it was. And I find I was able to navigate that all throughout high school. But I remember there were some subjects. I couldn't tell you a single thing I learned because the teacher hated me. I didn't like her. And it was like, I, I don't know. I think that I think that what you have and what you've experienced in your work has has obviously translated into your ability to profess and 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 teach. And I wish that more teachers were like you. I had bad teachers. And when I had bad teachers, when I was in art school, every day kids left class crying. Men, women, every single day. You know, teachers would humiliate kids. I, they would take their work off the wall. They would rip it up. Um, they would humiliate kids in class all the time. And it was awful. And looking back now as a teacher, I would think, how could you do something like that? And I didn't never had a passion or advocation for teaching, I thought. But I would, I remember, I said to myself, if I'm ever up there with a room full of kids, I will never, never do that. I mean, imagine, and uh, something you don't know also, is I took some Reebok classes, not Reebok, I took some CrossFit before I stopped into Reebok. And the place I was, I got humiliated in the middle of a class. And I left the gym and I walked out. So when I walked into Reebok, it was with the worst history. It was at a CrossFit gym. I had a bad experience. I got humiliated in a class. And I thought, I can't do this again. So I met good teachers, you guys. And that changed me, but I was really fearful. I think we learn, we appreciate good teachers as much as we learn from bad teachers. And I think if anyone's listening to this or a lot of people are in the fitness industry, it's like, hey, does that, does that one comment or does that one frustration, and really all it comes down to is lack of preparation of someone coming into your class. You know, if you, if you came into class and I didn't know that this movement might be challenging for you or I didn't know your mental state of, hey, this is going to be challenging. I don't even want to do this. I can't perform this. If I didn't already prepare myself for that, you know, I wouldn't have seen the pitch coming in slow. But when it's like I'm prepared for Orin, I'm prepared for all of this and to, to give you a good feeling is the best feeling as a coach. Because I know whoever the coach was that, you know, said or did whatever to, to embarrass you in a class, they weren't prepared to do that. They wasn't like, hey, this is part of my class plan. But I think also coaches can know and now take a step back to think, hey, is what I'm going to say benefit after knowing and hearing this story? If I say something to a new person that isn't positive or maybe funny in my thing or, or I'm not fully prepared for it, you, know, you can derail someone's journey. And I'm just so glad that you were able to come back in and, and I'd love to take credit for all the good pieces of my coaching, but it came from Austin. It came from Denise. It came from Chris Irwin from the earlier gym. It came from in my, my gyms in San Diego, all of the bad coaches that I saw and worked with. It was like, it was a culmination of, of all the things I've seen done well and done poorly. And, and that was just, that was the vibe of the gym. That was what they made sure everyone felt every day they came in. I didn't realize until it ended how special it was <laughs> until I didn't see you every day, but you were all different. And what I remember about you was that if I couldn't do something, I didn't just stand there as a failure. You gave me something else to do that I could do. So you gave me, you said, okay, you can't do this. That's fine. Let's give you something you can succeed at. And that was a great feeling. So you were always watching. Um, we were always your charge. And that's, that's what kept me coming. Because I knew that I'd be taken care of and that I would leave feeling like I could succeed. And here I am. 
And you're still you're still working with GC? Um, no, he doesn't take private clients anymore. So, you know, back now that Reebok is back open, you mm-hmm. know, I'm there and, you know, people are really nice about giving me stuff. The CrossFit classes don't come at a time of day I can do it. But, you know, I do it every day. You know, I set up a little routines for myself. I decide what I'm going to do. Um, I surprise myself. And, you know, I'm okay on my own. And if I have a question, I ask somebody because what I know is go to the experts. If I've learned anything in my life, mm-hmm. it's go to the experts. I'm expert at what I do. People come to me for that. When there's something I don't know, I go to the experts. Well, we're going to have to some set up some sessions just to make sure you're not getting too comfortable in your own workouts, doing the, doing the old Cindy um, workouts. But um, I am blown away learning more about your early life, learning about your, I mean, just life in general. Say early life, it seems like you've had three or four early lives about things that you're trying out. And it's it's incredibly inspiring and I love how it transitions to fitness, but even if it didn't, everyone has a parallel that they can draw to the advice that you have, to your life experiences. And there's no surprise and no, you know, there's no surprise that you've had the amount of successes that you've had and you have the accomplishments and you have the, you know, not only in your own right, but with other people wanting to, to give you achievement awards and and just unbelievable things. And I am fortunate, you know, you always say, I'm so fortunate for you guys because your health and your fitness, but, um, it goes both ways of that. And I'm unbelievably grateful one for you even wanting to come on here and chat with me, but two for the mentorship that you've given me outside of just in the gym, outside, outside of the positive feedback that you give us, gave us on a daily basis outside of the gym. Um, you know, the amount of feedback you've given me on my life and our, and our one-on-one sessions of hanging out. So with, with, with everything included in that is a, is a giant thank you. So I will say to you that I am nothing but grateful for my career, for the people that I've met, for the gym, for everything good that's happened. And the last message I want to give people is people think successes are built on successes, but they're not. Successes are built on failures. They're built on not being able to do it. You don't go from success to success. You go through times where you're just, things don't work out and you build something based on that. And people see, maybe they see you as an unbroken success or they see me as an unbroken success. It's not like that at all. Well, thank you. And I think on a, on a upcoming episode, if anyone thinks that of me, I'm going to just talk about the failures that I've gone through and, uh, and especially from my twenties to thirties. But again, thinking of them not as failures because that's the only reason I am where I am today. So, so just think you, so you've got like 30 years of failing ahead and succeeding and reinventing. It's like, how exciting is that? We might have more than that or not. You're, you're changing the game. You're the Benjamin button of the game. You may may have 30 more. You may have 60 more years. Uh, well, let's see. I think I have 30 more anyway. For sure. Well, I think I know when we talk about CrossFit, it's, it speaks of capacity and quality of life. You know, I know, I know people who are in their seventies who are immobile and they're still alive. They're still kicking, but they're not, they're not doing even a fraction of the things that you're doing in, you know, and, and that you will continue to do. Oh, I just watched a tape of a 90 year old CrossFit person. Cause I watched this stuff Yeah, and she was amazing. And she's like doing stuff that I can't do now. And I'm thinking, well, there's something to, <laughs> there's <laughs> a goal. Get these rope climbs down. <laughs> right. It is incredible. And I think that, that by adding longevity and quality of life via work capacity in there, I think it's, it makes you, you know, just as young as, you know, I mean, you're, like you said, your, your doctor said, um, you're healthier than you're an athlete. 
So thank you for that. I've learned so much from you. You know, you, you and everyone at the gym changed my relationship with fitness to be this thing that's like this great thing, this practice, and I owe you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you. And if any of the listeners want to follow up, want to follow your your work, want to follow anything, how, how can someone get a hold of you? Well, my parents named me really well. There's only one Orrin Sherman in the world. <laughs> so I'm really easy to find on the internet. So if you want to see an 11-minute memoir of my life, um, look up Orrin Sherman, O-R-E-N-S-H-E-R-M-A-N, and my TEDx talk. And it has everything about creativity and about succeeding and failing and picking yourself up again. I think we'll link that in the in Thank the video you. as well, so that people can get even more insight and background on you. And uh, I'm I'm so excited to get this episode out there because I think it's it's just cool not hearing the same thing of oh, you know fitness and and you know work hard and this stuff is good. It's just it's it's really cool, and, and your life's work is is I, I feel honored. So thank you. Me too. Thank you. This was fun. And if you want to follow along with us, and you don't already know how. You can find us on Instagram at Big Night Fitness and then me specifically at Connor T. Murphy, C-O-N-O-R-T-M-U-R-P-H-Y. And unfortunately for me, my parents weren't that creative in naming me because there's about 400,000 other Connor Murphys in the city of Boston. Um, but uh, you put the T in there or any way you want to uh, reach out to us. If you have questions for Orrin and you can't find him, always reach out to us, comment. Um, Whatever you need, we'll always get back to you, and we appreciate you listening in. And um, one more time, thank you, Orr. Thank you, Connor. Cheers. We'll see you next week.